May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. First, a little disclaimer about my voice. I don't have a cold. Um, I went to the um, Hudson-St. Ignatius football game last night. A couple of the referees needed to be reminded that Hudson is filled with good optometrists. Um, and so I set that, that message as loudly as I could to the field a couple of times. But it paid off. It did, yeah, in the end, yes. 35-year-old Nick Walenda um, did an amazing event a fortnight ago. He walked on a tightrope between skyscrapers over the city of Chicago. No safety harness, no net below him. What's more, not only did he do it once, he did it twice. Went from one skyscraper to another, then from that one to still another. I believe Frank has a son who lives in one of the buildings where he was, uh, where, where he was crossing. On the first leg of this tour, <laughs> whatever it was, Nick goes from one skyscraper to the other, and he has to go up an incline of 80 feet from one to the other, eight stories up, while going across the Chicago River over top these two buildings. The wind was gusting up to 25 miles an hour as he's walking with, again, no safety harness, no net, over these two buildings. It took him just under seven minutes to walk that distance. I think on the ground it would have taken me seven minutes to walk across the street, so not, not even slowed down at all. On the second leg... A short distance. Only had to cross 94 feet from one building to the other. So he decided to make this one a little more difficult. He did it blindfolded. Blindfolded, uh, 50 stories up in the air, no harness, no net, and he walked across this tightrope. Again, 25 mile an hour wind. As he got to the other side, the Guinness people were there to tell him that he had set a world record for the longest distance anyone had ever walked on a tightrope uh, at, such, at such height. The Discovery Channel showed this, I guess, live. I, I didn't actually see it. I was terrified to see it, to be honest with you. Um, but I hear that they put a 10-second delay in the, uh, the production so that should anything have happened to Nick, they wouldn't have shown it on line TV, thanks be to God. But there were thousands of people that night on the streets, in the windows, on the rooftops. I mean, the excitement was buzzing in the city. They say there hasn't been that much excitement in Chicago, well, since Sally Warburton went to Northwestern University. It was a, it was a wonderful time, and, and people were everywhere thrilled about that. Uh, you know, I've never done anything very exciting like that. Uh, in the fifth grade, I held Teresa McNabb's hand when our teacher showed a film strip, and I thought that was pretty thrilling, but um, not much. High risk, high reward. I mean... I don't know what the thrill was that Nick got when he stepped down off of that tightrope back onto the safety of the building, but I'm guessing he was pretty jacked up. I mean, it, was, it had to be a pretty amazing feeling going through him. But, you know, sometimes people find, you know, that a smaller reward is worth a smaller risk. I mean, you might get a good reward out of it, you know, not much risk at all. Like, for instance, you go to a movie. You plop down 10 bucks, it could be an awful film. I mean, it might just be a real stinker of a film. But, I mean, if it is, you've only wasted two hours and $10. How bad could it possibly be, right? And what's more, I know you. 
I know that none of you probably go to see a film without first going to Rotten Tomatoes and seeing that 78% of people see all this liked it. You read a few reviews and you think, yes, I'm in. So even then, the risk is pretty low. Low risk, high reward. Or maybe your friend Becky invites you over for supper. And you think to yourself, I don't know, Becky might make a horrible meal. You know, it might be just absolutely dreadful. Um, maybe she'll make peas. Uh, you know, I, I, a little secret, I hate peas. You know, I, just, I, just, I despise them. I think they taste like a musty basement. I don't know why. But at one time I remember that I was invited over to this uh, friend's house and she made this seven-layer salad. It was beautiful. I mean, it was just a gorgeous thing to look at. But there was a, a layer of peas, like, you know, two inches on the top of this thing. And you should have seen me digging through there, you know, trying not to be noticed. You might get invited over for dinner and somebody makes that's a that's a pretty low risk, low or high reward. I mean you can you can have a little bit of fun without risking much. Jesus tells a story about three servants who have a little bit of risk involved. They're entrusted with money, he says. There's a, a guy who has these three household servants, they're like slaves, and he has this money, and he's heading out, and he's going to entrust them to this money. This isn't this isn't $10. This isn't a little bit of money. This is a lot of money. He's entrusting them with a huge amount of money. He's going to be gone. There's no instructions given to how they're to use this money. And he says, I'm going to be gone for a very long time. The master is, of course, taking a huge risk, isn't he? He's risking that, that these guys could waste this money. You heard that it was called talents. This isn't about personal abilities, right? A talent is not a personal ability in this story. It's a sum of money. A talent was 1,000 denarii. A single denarius, one denarius, was a day's wage for an average worker. If we put that in sort of today's terms, I mean, imagine a day's wage of somewhere, I don't know, maybe $200. $200 for a day's wage. If you multiply that by 8,000, you get $1.6 million. I mean, even, even that's a, you know, a pretty hefty sum. But if you think about it in terms of the ancient world, this was about maybe 4 or 5% of the total amount of money in the ancient world. This is, a, this is a person who's taking his huge fortune, he's giving it to slaves, and he's going off. I hope you get the, the joke, though, the humor. Jesus says that these slaves are being trusted with millions of dollars. Household slaves are being trusted with millions. It's absurd. The risk is huge. And then they have the money, right? The master's not the only one taking the risk. The, 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 the servants are also risking a lot. I mean, imagine you are suddenly thrust with all this money, and somebody says, I have this great investment for you. You know, you've never had money to invest ever in your life, and suddenly here you have this huge amount of money. And someone says, oh, I have this great deal. And it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme, you know. <laughs> or, or someone comes to you and you've got this huge amount of money to invest and they say, I'm going to design this new chariot. I'm going to name it after my son Edsel. It's going to be wonderful. Everybody's going to love this thing. <clears throat> a few car buffs here. Yeah, it's not going to work. You know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong, aren't there? There are a few safe options. We heard one. You can put it in the bank, get a little bit of interest. The surprising thing, I think, is that two of the three servants go out and immediately put the money to work. Immediately they're out investing it, working it, trying to give money. If you look really closely at the text, you might notice something else. Jesus says that the master gave over his money to them. 
He gave it over. He didn't lend it to them. He gave it to them. At the end of the story, he doesn't take it back. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, now give me my money back. In fact, he takes the one who doesn't invest his money, the one who buries it, and he gives it to the one who already has ten. He doesn't take the money back. He gives it over to them. So they're risking not only you know, their master's money potentially, but also their own money. And then there's the third servant. The first two double their money. The third one is worried. He's worried about the master. I mean, the master could be a harsh person. You know, I notice that the other two don't think this about the master. Did you notice that? The, only the third one thinks that the master is harsh. He's the only one who thinks that the master reaps where he doesn't sow and, and, and takes what's not his. He's the one who has this view of the master that's not consistent with what the other ones think. And he takes the money and he puts it in a box and he digs a hole and he buries it and he keeps it there until the end. I always thought it was sort of a slight that, you know, one guy gets five, you know, another guy gets two, this guy gets one. You know, he gets, I mean, why does he get one? Maybe because the master knows exactly what he'll do with it. He'll bury it and not use it. And then, of course, the master is gone for a very long time. He arrives back, and let's have an accounting. What happened? What did you guys do while I was gone? And the first one says, hey, I, I took my, my, my five, I made five more, I have ten. And what does the master say? Well done. We're having a party, you're a guest. You're no longer a slave, you're a guest. Come on in, let's, let's, let's have a party. And to the next one, you know, I, I had two, and, and now I have four. Well done. Come on. The party's starting. You're no longer a slave. You're a guest. And then to the third one. And the third one admits, Oh, you know, I know you're a harsh man. You sow where you don't, you, you, you reap where you don't sow. You, you take what's not yours. And so I took it and I hid it. And here, here's your money back. You can have it back. And what does he call him? What does the master say to that slave? You wicked and lazy servant. What about fearful? It doesn't say fearful. No, you wicked and lazy servant. Not only are you not going to be welcome to the banquet, your worst fears are going to be realized. You're out in the streets. You're out into this dog-eat-dog world. No banquet for you. You're, in fact, out of here. The story, of course, is not a story about money. It's not a story about money at all. Jesus knows that when he says money, we'll pay attention. Like, oh, did somebody say money? I I think I heard money. And and we listen. It's not about money at all. Jesus is very subversive in his teaching. He often uses money. In fact, you know Jesus speaks about money more than he speaks about almost anything else other than the kingdom of God. And almost never is it about money. And here's the saying. What's the story about? Well, it's a story about how Christians are to live in the world whilst we're waiting on his return. How are we to live out this faith? How does a faithful Christian live? Well, there's two options, right? Boldly, courageously, or timidly, full of fear, afraid to take any risk at all. Bury treasure, lest we squander it. Hold on tight-fisted to the things that are entrusted to us, lest they fall away. Concerned, worried, apprehensive, or bold, courageous, risk-taking. I read a story not too long ago about this um, Roman Catholic parish, inner city. The bishop wanted to close it. The people begged him, please, please don't close this parish. And he says to them, I'll give you a priest in a year. You have to make a difference. 
And they turned the church around. That church that was about to be closed was breaking at the seams. They, they, they knew that if they didn't work hard, it was over. The parish that they had been married in and their parents had been buried in and everything that had been... This was it. I know of a little church in Tip City, Ohio. Anybody know where Tip City is? <laughs> Tip City, Ohio. In the Dayton area. Little parish outside of Tip City. Not even in the city. Outside of the city. It was a little rural Methodist parish. Beautiful little church. But it was about to be closed. The bishop said it's over. They said, please... Give us, give us one more chance. All right. You get, a, you get a, a, a pastor in a year. And they turn the church around. Today, this is called the Ginghamburg Church. More than 4,000 people on a weekend go to worship there. It was a little church of you know, 30 or 40 people. I'm not saying that the, the big bulging churches. I'm saying that people took risks. They realized that something was really valuable was about to be taken away. And they worked for the sake of the kingdom because they believed it was important. I can tell you a story about an Anglican priest and scholar in England who, um, who was a very cultured man, loved fine music and high church worship. But he looked around, this was in the 18th century, and he realized that the people of England were being let down by the church. People were in debt, and they couldn't pay off their debts, and they were thrown into prison because of these debts. The gin industry was using all the grain in the country so much that there was no bread in the groceries. And so this Anglican priest with his high church sensibilities and his love for fine music did something that was viewed as the uttermost disgusting thing. It was field preaching. He started preaching. and It was practically illegal in the 18th century. And he did it anyway. And before the end of his life, he, had, he himself was responsible for more than 100,000 people coming to faith in Jesus. And another one of his protégés went to the United States of America and in 1784 helped to form the beginning of a church. He himself traveled more than 500,000 miles in the United States on horseback. A man named Francis. 500,000 miles on horseback. Planted churches all over the place. Or what about people like Mother Teresa or Thomas Merton, Billy Graham? People who risked everything, everything for the sake of the gospel. Gave up everything they had, risked it all for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom. Or what about people like uh, Thomas Aquinas or Joan of Arc? Here's a bold young woman. Would risk everything for the sake of the kingdom. And you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing that really gets me as I think about it. They are no different than you or me. They do the same sorts of things that you and I do. They get up and make breakfast. French toast for me. They get up and they, they, they go through their day. They do their work. And they risk everything all the time for the kingdom. Not bearing their stewardship, but using it. So here's the real payoff for this one, Right? Something has been placed in your hands. You have something. You have been given a gift of some sort. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some real talent. Maybe it's a, an ability to talk to people. Maybe it's an ability to write. Maybe it's an ability to play music. Maybe it's an ability... I don't know what it is. Maybe you, know, you have a treasure that's been given to you. There is something that... And some, some... Most of you. Many things. Not just one... The question is, are you willing to risk it for the sake of the kingdom? 
Oh, you know, I don't know. I'm afraid. It could be scary. Bad things could happen. Our master has been going for a long, long time. But this passage says that he's coming back. (laughs) He's coming back, and when he does, he's going to say, Come to me. What did you do with what I gave you? And the answer that I was afraid, you know, that's not the answer that we have to give. I risked everything, and look, I doubled what you gave me. If Nick Walinda can get up on a tightrope and walk from one skyscraper to the another over the city of Chicago, hundreds of feet above the air, thousands of people beneath him, he could splat and be done in an instant. He's even walked across Niagara Falls. This guy must have a screw loose or something like that. But if he's done that, surely we could risk whatever it is God has given us for something far more valuable. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.